Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a brand new podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I am Tiger Gao, Princeton sophomore and the director of outreach for undergraduate associates at Princeton's Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. When people think of Europe today, one issue that always come up is the financial stability of the eurozone. Is the European banking system doing better since the euro crisis that took place from 2009-2012? What are some of the regulatory changes that took place in the financial sector as a result of that crisis? To discuss financial regulations after the euro crisis, it's a great pleasure for me to welcome Professor Matthias Thiemann to our studio today. Professor Thiemann is visiting us from Sciences Po Paris, uh, also known as the Paris Institute for Political Studies. He is both a political economist and a sociologist, and he primarily researches on post-crisis regulatory changes in the U.S. and Europe and the regulators' attempts to control risk-taking behaviors in the financial industry. Professor Thiemann's book, The Growth of Shadow Banking, a Comparative Institutional Analysis, actually just came out around six months ago, and he gave a lecture at Princeton today titled The Regulation of Finance in Europe After the Euro Crisis. It's truly gracious of you to take the time talking to us today, Professor Thiemann, and thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I, I guess most of our listeners probably have heard the term euro crisis um, when, when several eurozone member states like Greece, Portugal and Ireland uh, were unable to repay their government debt and had to be bailed out by the European Central Bank and the IMF. Um, but, but would you mind sort of giving us a quick introduction on how you view the euro crisis, how it ended up affecting the financial regulations in Europe? Um, also, mm-hmm. just um, giving us some some of your perspective on those developments. Okay. Yeah, um, thank you. That's a, that's a very interesting question. I think it's important to to differentiate um, the different aspects that play into the eurozone crisis. Uh, first of all, we should never forget that it all really started with a global or what we could call a transatlantic financial crisis in 2007-2008, um, where uh, problems from America and uh, where bad debt in America that was issued affected European banks, and that were banks also very much in the core of Europe. And then at the same time, when the system was already weakened, you had um, property bubbles, especially in Spain and uh, Ireland, that popped and that created domestic problems, just like you had here in the US. And on the other hand, you had a country like Greece that, as people like to point out, what they call lived above their means. And in a sense, so, but if we look at the size of Greece, it becomes evident that Greece itself cannot have been such a major problem. It's much too small to be a huge problem for Europe. What actually was the problem that nobody knew what was going to happen if Greece were to default. And Greece couldn't really default, but at the same time, Greece didn't have its own central bank anymore in the sense of there's still a Greek central bank, but they can't print the money for them. So the European Central Bank took many, many years to finally come to the decision to indirectly finance these countries in order to make sure that they survive. In the end, I mean, the U.S. has done this, the British have done this, the Japanese have done this. But in Europe, it was really the problem was that the treaty stated that you can't bail out what's called bailout. You can't finance a, a government 
member state government with the help of the European Central Bank. And so it took three years until um, Draghi finally took the step and decided to save the Eurozone because otherwise it would have fallen apart. And you were asking me about financial regulation. What would happen actually in the summer of 2012 when they realized that it's going to go down or they're going to do something about it. Um, Draghi got the got an agreement of the leaders of Europe to move European banking supervision to the European level so that the European Central Bank that now had to bail out these countries but also kind of take care of these banks as they weren't problems, that they could also would take over the role of supervising these banks in good times. So matching both the level where you bail out the system with the level where you supervise the system. And that's maybe the biggest change in Europe after the crisis is the supervision of European banks by the European Central Bank. So you would say that a lot of the regulations really moved up from a national level to European level. Yes, I mean, especially for the for the banking system, that's exactly what happened. And it took them many, many years. So analysts are still complaining that it took them so much time and so on. But basically, here's what happened. So in 2012, they decided that they'll move it up to the European level. In 2014, the European Central Bank hired an additional 1,000 people to do the supervision, and they do the supervision together with national teams. So the national banks, central banks that are still there, work together with the European Central Bank in order to engage one level of supervision. And now, today, actually last week, uh, the European Ministries of Finance decided to have the European Stability Mechanism that's a possible 500 billion euro pocket of money. It's, a, it's, it's like um, it's an institution that could take up that debt on financial markets and it's backed by the European Union that they could be used to bail out banks. Because what happened in Europe was that before the crisis and still today, the banks have become so large that national governments can actually no longer bail them out. So everybody knows that BNP Paribas, for example, is a 2 trillion euro bank. If they really fail and you have to bail them out, you really have to help them, the French government possibly, arguably, will be too small to take care of it without it itself suffering very d damaging consequences. So it's very good news that we have decided to also lift the who is going to take care of banks in trouble to the European level. It's very important for the European stability. And just to quickly clarify for our um, listeners, because we probably will release this episode a little bit later. When you said last week, it's around uh, third, third December, December. December sixth. And, and what exactly measure was that? Was about uh, bring the national regulators? No. Uh, what happened was basically for many years they said. Um, well, if there's a real problem, how are we going to pay for it? Just like the U.S. paid uh, when they gave all their banks $10 billion in 2008, who's going to recapitalize the banks? And so last week they decided that if that should happen again and there should be a crisis in Europe, there is today a European um, stability mechanism, it's called. It's an entity that can take yes. up debt from c capital markets and use that money to recapitalize banks. And in that way, they have broken what they call, or they hope to break, what they call the state bank doom loop. And that's a very important um, concept. And that's basically the idea that in Europe, states and banks have become very uh, close together and banks have become so big that 
either states can take down their banks, but also banks can take down their states. And actually, it looked for a while in the Eurozone crisis if, as if they were going to go down together. So you, would you say that the only solution, if uh, a financial crisis were to ever hit Europe again in the short term, the only solution would be a European solution in, in the sense that only the European level agency will be able to salvage the situation? Yes, absolutely. Exactly. And that is actually pretty much what has happened, and it's the one reason why we can actually speak of progress. There has not been much other progress. People were hoping for much more in terms of European integration. But that's the one thing that happened, and that's undeniably a huge step forward for Europe. Because at least at this level, we're not like the U.S. I mean, in the U.S., you have well, you also have many supervisors, but you have one big supervisor, which is the Federal Reserve, who's taking care of the big banks, and you have a you have a treasury. So if there's a problem, the treasury minister, the Geithner in that moment, could come in and, and tell the banks, well, uh, you take the money. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and today, we don't have a treasury in Europe, and uh, some people might regret that, but at least we have a European stability mechanism that can put the money in and thereby stabilize the situation, which is going to be very important in the future. Um, and just to go a little bit further in that idea of financial crisis. I think you mentioned today in your lecture that this this idea that Europe will grow stronger one crisis at a time. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with this saying? So this statement is from a French statesman who's very important, Jean Monnet, who was at the founding of Europe. And it's this idea that European leaders never can agree. They always haggle and it takes them forever to agree to anything. So it's only in the moment of crisis that they come together. And we really see this happening for European, the European Banking Union. That's how it's called. But <clears throat> the way that European finance is shaped today, I'm not sure we can really afford another crisis. And that is potentially the biggest threat is that if the next crisis comes and we might want to take the next step, uh, the crisis itself might blow us away. And, 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 I mean, crises can happen, arguably. Some people believe they just happen like comets that hit planet Earth. But I'm one of those who actually thinks that they're often caused by internal dynamics, governance problems, and the Europeans should try to fix those problems before they get the next crisis. Because what I'm trying to say by that is Europe for a long time, especially with respect to finance, has been in a game where they thought to undercompete each other in terms of regulatory standards. All, everybody's trying to have a big financial center. So you have Paris, you have yeah, Frankfurt, Frankfurt, you have London. And so there was kind of a, like a race to be most attractive for finance, which often also means to be not so harsh in terms of regulation. And that's exactly where the problem comes when, when you're not strong enough on financial regulation for financial stability purposes you can actually make the probability of a financial crisis bigger. Right. And Europe can't afford that. Europe also needs a financial sector that provides finance, but Europe really can't afford another crisis right now. But isn't this what's in a way fundamentally contradictory about the European system is that you have a European Union, but you have national regulators. All the banks are nationally regulated. And the, between each nation, they're still kind of competing with each other, even though they have a common political interests maybe sometimes so yeah um, we have we really have to move towards in that sense that's why i think we have to move to the european level and there i'm really a europeanist 
it's we can see this very nicely today with Brexit. So when Brexit happened, and this is actually one of the few moments in history where you see a lot of unity, and, and the UK was really surprised by that. But one thing that happened was when it became clear that UK will leave, different European financial centers, such as Luxembourg, started to compete for the business from, from, from the London. UK. Yes. And they were sending almost like video messages to these bankers saying, oh, you can just and this is literal, you can just come to our place, you can open up a letterbox, you don't even need to move to Luxembourg, you just can stay even in London, you know. And uh, But we're still going to make a little bit of money from you by you paying some taxes in Luxembourg. And then, But then what, ha what happened, what I think is important, is that the Europeans said, no, we're not going to take that. If you are going to move out of London because of Brexit, we will have you as a physical person come to Europe. And so that was one of the moments where actually you could see some unity and purpose, where they didn't allow, for example, Luxembourg to play this game of uh, outcompeting the others by offering better conditions. And But that's only partial. So we still have this game going on about, you know, who gets more bankers? It's going to be Paris or Frankfurt, or now we actually also have Madrid and we have Warsaw in the running. But we have to be very careful that we're not entering into what could be called regulatory competition. You know, like competing in terms of regulation is dangerous because it might mean that you're not stringent enough on financial stability. In terms of cushions for the banks? Yeah, like, like for example, for the banks, but actually today, a lot of business is happening outside of banks' balance sheets. And one thing that I found very interesting uh, in studying Brexit was that the debate very quickly turned to what are called central counterparties. And so these are non-banks, but they employ a lot of, lot of people. And they are responsible for uh, dealing with deals that are done between banks. And so... Um, one industry representative uh, told its government in the UK that 100,000 people are employed today in the city of London related to post-trade, like you could call it, um, processing. Like once somebody does a deal, well, who takes care of the paperwork? Who are the lawyers? Who are the auditors? Who are the accountants? And all of that. And actually, Brexit, the, the, the fight over Brexit has become at least as much about where these entities go as where the banks go. So what I'm trying to say is regulatory competition no longer happens today with respect to the banks, not that much, because we moved it to the European level and we have one European supervisor. But we have to be very careful because, for example, these central counterparties, they're nationally regulated. And so we have the same game in a different arena, but we have the same dynamics going on where Europe, Europe is competing with each other on... Who gets to attract more of this business? And that's very dangerous, I think. But do you see European unity increasing or decreasing in the next couple of years? Because we we're seeing Macron's approval rating sliding. Uh, Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, just um, stepped down as the, the ch chairwoman of the, her party. We see uh, ECB president Mario Draghi is going to... Well, yeah. I mean, the future is open. But I think uh, that Europe indeed is at a, at a crucial turning point. And Europe has to, has to be able to uh, become a lived experience for the people more. People have to be more like, oh, the European Union is helping me in my everyday life, and so I should stand up for Europe. And if Europe can't do that, then it will not. 
I mean, it is under threat, and but it can't continue as it did before because it's important to understand that Europe always had, in a sense, two promises. Europe had the, the promise of the market, and I think so what they've done since the 1980s to revive the European project, it was this, oh, we're going to create the European market for finance, for example, for banking, for capital. And they're still doing that, and I think they've learned an important lesson and that you can't do that if you don't also move the regulation to the European level. It's not a good idea to have regulatory competition. But Europe also was always a promise of solidarity. And that is really underdeveloped. It's in Europe you find this in the structural funds, where we are helping the regions that are arguably not as developed. But at the same time, we're undermining each other. We have engaged for 50 years in what could be called like tax competition. So Luxembourg and all these countries Sorry that I'm always picking on Luxembourg. It's also the <laughs> Netherlands, and every country has this, not Germany too. So we're making, offering special deals to companies to come to our place. We're saying, oh, you don't have to pay that much money, but if you come here, we're going to make everything for you. We're going to give you tax credits and so on. Well, that might be good for each individual country, but it's really bad for the union. And it's actually in that moment that you get to ask yourself, why, why, why is it called a union? if each and every member state has this interest in, in going behind the back of each other and like offering this competition because it's not only regulatory competition, it's also tax competition. And we have to stop that trend because people will be like, well, what kind of union is that? Right. So, but you, you since you are Europeanist, you wouldn't say that the structure of European Union with the idea of a European unity is fundamentally paradoxical given how nations compete with each other naturally. Well, I think actually the word naturally is uh, is uh, is probably not the the right the right word here. It it has to be, and I think that's where Europe has to assert itself. You know, from a, a national perspective, I think what Jean Claude Juncker did in the 1980s and 1990s and 2000s is understandable. He, he faced Luxembourg faced very strong deindustrialization, so he was like, "Well, what I'm gonna do?" And he's like, "Okay, I'm gonna attract financial industry." I'm going to make some money of them. And in that way, Luxembourg can survive, which I think is, I mean, from an individual perspective, it's good. But if you look at it from a European perspective, if everybody competes over taxes, the state can no longer protect its citizens. The state can no longer be a state. If the state can't be a state because it's a competition state that has to lower taxes and so on, what you actually get is you get people left behind, like the yellow vests in France. That we're seeing, right. They feel left behind. They're like, well, look, we're getting, because if the corporations don't pay taxes, if the rich don't pay taxes. Why should I be having this fuel tax that exactly. make it my life harder? Right? Exactly. The state has disappeared. There is no more state, but I'm paying more taxes. What is this? You know? And so we need to get, and there I'm really with uh, Piketty, Thomas Piketty, who just came out with a, He's very strongly pushing this idea. We need to act almost like a state on the European level. You see this also with Google and Amazon and Apple when uh, the European commissioner, she went after them and she said, she said to Ireland, Ireland, you made a tax deal to Apple. You have to ask back taxes, 13 billion euros from Apple because you gave you, how can I explain that? You try to attract Apple to Ireland, yes. but you gave them a tax deal that I think is unfair to everybody in the European Union and to yourself. 
And so they forced Ireland to take the money back, and Ireland didn't want to. Why not? Because Ireland knew that its entire business model right. as a state was built on attracting these big yes. international corporations. But Europe can't accept that anymore. Europe has to assert itself as Europe. Because if it doesn't, it can't... Europe, it's going to fragment. Exactly, it's going to disappear. Because Europe... Uh, a long time was thought as a as a as a as a framework, you know, just as market, and then the nation states can compete in it. You know what? If nation states compete in it, everybody's worse off, but the corporations and the rich people. I'm I'm a bit a polemic here, okay? Sure. But uh, for the sake of argument, I think that um, you have to think about as a European, as a Europeans, how can you re? And this is the 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 rhetoric of Macron. If you listen to Macron, that's what he's saying. And but in the end it, it is up to the to the task. Can we can we achieve it? I mean it's nice to give your speeches about Europe. But the problem is if we if, if Europe can't agree to get its act together on that, it's, it's just gonna go down. I wanna move on to the uh, the topic of shadow banking, because I know you are a huge expert in that. We um, we were giving you an introduction at the lecture today, and they called you a sociologist of of the banking sector. The mm-hmm. um, so I was wondering, what are some of the general principles of shadow banking? If you could tell us, because it sounds like such an elusive term. Yes, 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 very much. So I think uh, shadow banking is a term that tries to describe the practice of the creation of credit outside of banks' balance sheets. So in the past, somebody would come to a bank and say, I need a mortgage, and then that company, the bank, would have to get deposits, in a sense, in order to finance that mortgage. Today what happens is that bank might write that mortgage, but it will turn around and sell the mortgage to capital markets. And in a sense, the question is, that is kind of shadow banking. The question is, how do you um, regulate that? Because in the past, we regulated banks, right? We said, you can have, uh, you can make that much loans with your own money. You need that m- amount of money on your own and so on. But then when banks start to engage, and that's what happened before the financial crisis, that's why it got so so famous. When start, banks start just to originate mortgages, to distribute them in capital markets, then they have no longer limitations. The limitation is only the money that they can find in capital markets. And what we found, that's where shadow banking became famous as a term after the crisis because people said, oh, they actually found out that a lot of this credit generation is has been outsourced to capital markets, but the banks are still deeply exposed to the risks. So when the financial crisis hit, we found out that a lot of American and European banks were very exposed to those risks and we had to bail them out. And so we, we start, people start to wonder, um, how do you regulate these activities of credit creation that uh, are no longer only on the balance sheet of banks. In your book, The Growth of Shadow Banking, Comparative Institution Analysis, you talked about the importance of, quote-unquote, prudence in financial regulation, as well as, quote-unquote, regulatory dialectic and network. So what do you mean by prudence and regulatory dialectic? Do you think that the European and U.S. regulators should be more mindful of those things today. Mm -hmm. So um, the regulatory dialectic is a term that really just describes the fact that whenever you impose regulation, the regulated will seek to get around it. 
So in, in, in banking regulation, for example, we try to make sure that they don't take too much risks. And then legal and financial engineers come up and invent new methods of doing the same thing, but outside of the regulation. Not for a long time has driven the growth of shadow banking. And I think um, we have kind of tried to deal with parts of that after the financial crisis because people did learn a lot about what went on. But um, we have to be what, – what the simple statement of prudence is, is it means to think about uh, the problems from, from the end of it. That is to say, in the financial, before the financial crisis, people relied and still do rely a lot today on very um, what could be called fickle money. That is wholesale money where people give you money for the short term and they might quickly stop giving you money. Well, if you are a bank, or in this case, the shadow banks, and you refinance a 30-year mortgage packaged security or five years with 30-day short-term money, right? Some people thought, well, it's never going to be a problem because there's always money. And there was a lot of money, and there's still a lot of money today. But some other people saw it and said, well, what's going to happen if these people don't want to pay that anymore? Like, don't want to have any more exposure to this shadow bank. It's not very stable. Exactly. It's instable. And we have to take those these factors into account when we look at financial innovations. We have to ask ourselves, well, what's the leverage? What's the mismatch? What is happening here? And what I find interesting in my follow-up work that I looked at this is we have today a lot of work on this and very interesting analysis, especially from the United States and especially from the Federal Reserve Board. But here's a fundamental contradiction of the U.S. that you see in many different fields. You are the world leaders in the analysis of it, but you don't do much about it. And the reason is that the Federal Reserve doesn't really have the mandate to really engage in financial stability. What are some of the examples? The, the, the well, they, they are looking at, for example, corporate indebtedness. Okay. And they're saying there are certain areas of corporate indebtedness, you could call it leverage bonds or junk bonds. Like Some companies have just become too exposed and these sectors of the financial markets are growing too fast. So they're looking at it and they're saying, oh, there, there's, there's too much growth here of highly leveraged companies that shouldn't be getting ever more debt, you know? But the market is still supplying the debt because well, rich people get richer in the U.S. and they, have to, they want to put the money somewhere. And so um, the U.S. is looking at this, the, the regulator, and, and they're worried. But they have a difficult time of doing something about it. And so because of their mandate because they don't really have a financial stability mandate. So they're working on changing that. So I'll give you um, two statements on that. The IMF just came out and warned about this, said we see too much growth in these high, um, highly risky corporate debtors. They, they take on too much debt. We should do something about it. And uh, the U.S. has tried to do something about it in 2013, but you can really see how they have a problem because they don't really have the tools, so they have to be very clumsy. It takes them many months before they get anything done about it. And then still the measure is, is rather very small. And the most telling thing about it, and this is from the Federal Reserve itself, they've made an analysis, a simulation, and they said, well, let's imagine we have a mortgage boom, a housing boom, financed by mortgage credit in the shadow banking sector. 
which is exactly what happened before the crisis. And they said, what could we do to stop it as the Federal Reserve? And the answer is pretty much nothing. That's the Federal Reserve itself publishing. Because we don't have enough financial tools or uh, the regulators the regulators don't yet have enough financial tools to to basically intervene when they see a bubble. What the US has done is and they have done a quite job you can argue how good a job it is, but they have forced their big banks to have more capital. So they have more caution if something goes wrong. But they ha don't really have the tools to say, oh, we see a problem in this sector or in that sector, and we want to do something about it. And that has a lot to do with uh, the history of the U.S., and there should not be too much intervention. And so, so every country is trying to come up with these tools in order to intervene. And the U.S. has developed this thing that's called the Financial Stability Oversight Council. It's a mouthful. It's the FSOC. And it is 10 agencies in the U.S. that come together and have to decide this, the Treasury, the SEC, the Fed, and so on. And the problem is that there are so many actors that before they get to take any decision, that takes a long time. But then at the same time, I mean, every country has to find its own way. What about a country like China? When they got a huge um, shadow banking industry. Yeah, so the, the Chinese, I think they're, they're also monitoring this very carefully also. I mean... They're also very. They're, they're they have the financial tools. They, well, they have well, the they mandate. do. Well, well, they have the mandate, and they're trying to do it at the same time. They're they're, they're walking a tightrope because they don't want to. Um, they want to continue the economic expansion. So, so they're they're trying to get it under control in a way that um, you don't have more risks amassing at the same time. Uh, that you do not risk the economic growth. Shadow banking in China, as shadow banking in every country, is very institutionally specific. So these are usually located at the, at the local or regional level. These are off-balance sheet lenders that hold a lot of uh, debt. And in the end, with, as with every shadow bank, you have to ask yourself, who stands behind that entity that gives the credit, right? And who will secure it if there is a problem? Because if we have a bank, the bank is supposed to take care of that with its capital. And what characterizes shadow banks is that they don't have that capital. So somebody has to stand behind that shadow bank and, 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 and secure it in a sense. You know, So in some countries, it's the central bank. In some countries, it's banks and the central bank behind the banks. <laughs> but I think what is – well, so we'll see. And I'm not an explicit expert on China, but what – what we can see in the past is that the Chinese are trying to have a control over it. And, and there's an interesting question here. When you are worried about credit expansion, as I just mentioned, you could be worried about different sectors. You could say, oh, there's so much growth in this. Is the question as a central bank, do you have control over it? Or are there certain entities that you have a hard time controlling? And you're right, maybe the Chinese do have a bit of a better control over their financial system. But then again, I'm, I'm not that much of an expert on Chinese shadow banking. I, I must say, unfortunately, my book doesn't exclude China. It, it focuses on, on, on the languages that I speak. <laughs> and, um, but uh, but I, uh, I think that well, the most important thing is that the Chinese government, they have a lot of reserves that they will use to recapitalize their banking system. Right. And that currently at least gives them some stability. So it seems that when we talked about the shadow banking, there's so so much more underlying risks um, in both the European and U.S. financial systems compared to when we were just talking about um, 
just banking in general. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, do you, how, how much underlying risk do you think we're really going through right now in the U.S. and Europe? Yeah, so, uh, well, actually, um, I would like to give three answers to that. The first one is shadow banking. We can also understand it as a dream, as a dream that risks in financial markets are controllable, that we can have a perfect risk management. And that's exactly where my notion of prudence comes in. We should not fool ourselves. We can't statistically compute perfectly the future. But that's a general statement. Everybody can agree to that, I think. But much more important is that when you have people that make money out of what they call optimizing risk management, which is really taking the maximum of risk given a certain caution or capital that they have, you will end up what, like what happened before the crisis. You will think you're safe. It kind of looks it's safe. But what actually happened is that you have ma- taken the maximum amount of risk given a certain constraint, right? And so we have to be careful that this tendency of the system to take ever more risk does not get out of control. And that's exactly where the banking regulator and the financial regulator comes in and says, hold on, guys, I think, I think you're, you have to be a bit more prudent here. And that's where we need the, the banking regulators and the financial regulators to come in. For example, these central counterparties, we don't know if they have enough uh, caution to deal with all the derivatives that they, that they have to deal with. You mentioned Europe and the U.S. I think right now the U.S. is raising its interest rates. And actually, there are actually two kind of risks that we'll see. I mean, one is um, corporate over-indebtedness in, in the U.S. That What happens when you have very low interest rates? Well, people get over-indebted. But more importantly is actually the U.S. dollar is a world reserve currency. And uh, emerging markets have actually started to take up a lot of debt in dollars. And now as the Federal Reserve raises its interest rate, it doesn't only raise the interest rate for the people in the U.S., but also for all the other people around the world that have debt in dollars. That could actually be a big problem. So many people think that real problems are actually going to emerge not from uh, Europe or the U.S. this time, but from emerging markets, and they're going to go. But, you know, the future is open. (laughs) We don't know. So if you were to give any advice for the Wall Street bankers or the Washington bureaucrats or the Mm -hmm. bureaucrats in Brussels or Mm -hmm. Frankfurt or Mm -hmm. Berlin, what would you say in terms of the risks, in terms Mm -hmm. of regulation? So I would would say we have to be, after the crisis, um, uh, an idea has taken hold that we have to have Collateral, so everybody has to have collateral when they do deals, and, and that might be a good development. But we have to be very careful in that we're again having the same system where we have people trying to optimize the collateral. That is, to t- they want to take the maximum risk that they can because risk means return, given a certain amount of collateral. And so, what we what we think we find in our studies of central counterparties is that there is potentially a tendency for these central counterparties to underprice risk. So to take less collateral than they would otherwise, because in that way they will have more business. And banks will play along because they can do more business. And hedge funds will play along because they can do more business. And the problem is when you have a system in which every player agrees to take more risk than he takes cushions for, 
than, than he provides for, then you have a buildup of what is called systemic risk. And that could actually threaten the entire system. So in that moment, it's actually the task of the regulator to step in and say, look, guys, all of you individually, you might think that it's really smart what you're doing and you're optimizing. But for the system as a whole, it becomes more fragile. So I want all of you guys to load up on cushions because you're, you're thinking you're doing the optimal thing and maybe for individually you're doing it. But for the system as a whole, you're actually threatening the entire system. And and what I mean by that is like, you know, if you you can't go back in time, but we can read the documents from before the crisis. And what is fascinating about it is that people thought that banks are well capitalized, because the numbers looked like that. So if you they looked at the numbers, were like, oh, the banks are super well capitalized. What they forgot to say is that it was risk weighted capital, and all the trick was in the risk weighting. So the banks were loading up as much risk as they could take given the risk-weighted capital that they had. Now, we have made the banks stronger. Well, we have pushed the business out of banks into non-banks that engage with banks in credit intermediation. And now these entities are leveraging up on risk as much as they can, in a sense. Okay, And so we have to make sure that somebody steps in and says, listen, guys, I understand all of you want to lever up on risk, you want to make as much money as possible. But we have to make sure that there is enough caution to deal with the risks when they materialize, you know. And and the, the danger in the system is if we let the system run on its own, individual agents have an interest to downplay the risks or maximize the risks by downplaying the caution, reducing the cautions in the system. And it's the task of the regulator to step in and say, hey, prudent here, we need more. So just like what you said about the Europeans, the, the regulators and the mm-hmm. authorities need to step up yes. and look at those issues from a higher perspective. Yes, and the danger is if you have competition among regulators, then they, they might they, exactly they might not take that perspective. They might take the perspective of their national country and they say, "I'm thinking short term, and I want Frankfurt to be the financial center." They're acting their own national interest exactly. rather than the interest of a European Union exactly. or the world. Yes, that's exactly right. Totally makes sense. So, but looking ahead, do you think that a new debt or financial crisis is coming soon, either to Europe or to United States or to emerging markets? You know, I will, I will, I will turn this the other way around because I don't have a crystal ball. But it actually becomes interesting to think about this in two ways. What if a crisis is coming and what if no crisis is coming? And I would like to start with what if no crisis is coming? Because what we see is actually increasing debt levels. Corporate debt is going up. People in the US, they private household debt indebtedness has reached almost or has reached the level of pre-crisis. But today it's student loans that have taken up mortgage loans in the US. Well, but we can ask ourselves, let's say there is no financial crisis and this continues forevermore. Well, what kind of life is this if every person has $100,000 of debt, $200,000 of debt? We can ask ourselves, well, how come that people have so much debt today? That wasn't always like that. Why is it? For example, with student loans, we can point out, well, in the US, for example, there was public education that was paid for by taxes and it was pretty decent. And then what happened is that the state withdraw and tuitions go up and students pay. And how do they pay? Through financial markets. So the question could even be, even if there's no crisis, 
in the terms of a financial crisis, there could be another crisis here. So we should also think about that, right? And on the other hand, a financial crisis. So I think financial systems are unstable. It's their nature. And I don't want to use the word nature, but it, 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 it especially when we, when we deregulate them, when we liberalize them, they tend to be unstable. And I think there will be financial crisis. How big they will be, I mean, some people think, you know, maybe it's only every 80 years that you have this bigger crisis, right? A cycle. A cycle. That would be a super cycle, even. <laughs> but, but, you know, I think on the one hand, maybe in the U.S., you know, you've heard, the U.S. also learned this the hard way in 2008 because before they were just like shrugging this off, right? Financial crises were happening in Latin America, in Asia, right? In 1982, 1995, 1997. There are actually plenty of crises, right? Well, they were saying, well, this is something for developing countries. This doesn't happen in the center of, of the universe. Right. And then it happened. And so, but I mean, we, we have to think about how we could... Uh, make this, this financial system more stable, but we also have to think about as a society, does that possibly have other effects, not only on the financial system, but if everybody's indebted, is that what we want? I mean, that's just, I mean, you know, I'm German and maybe we Germans have a weird view on debt. We think it's a problem. <laughs> and I don't think it's always a problem. Actually, I think there are good moments when you can get into debt. But as a society, we should ask ourselves, for the last 40 years, debt levels have gone up ever more. And they're going up. It seems like they're going up ever more. And is that what we want? That's just a societal question, I think, that we should ask ourselves. And do you think our world is prepared for that? Have we become more vulnerable, our system become more vulnerable to another financial crisis? Or, as you said, as a Europeanist, have we actually become stronger through this rise of uh, from national regulators to European level regulators? Well, the first thing is when you go from national to European regulators, you still don't have global regulation, right? <laughs> so that is, <laughs> that is to say there's still a competition between Europe and the US. I mean, right now the US is largely on top of that, but uh, you, you could get even still the same dynamics that you had between national countries now between the Europe and the US. But, but that doesn't have to be that way. And um, But I think... Um, the second question you were asking, you're always asking like almost like two questions at the same time, <laughs> is, is, is have, we become, have we become more vulnerable to another crisis? I think there is something interesting going on where we have to connect the increasing inequality in our societies with uh, financial market activity because we know that rich people put their money in financial markets and we know that rich people t happen to get richer over the last 30 years quite a lot. And so where did that money go? It didn't only go to hedge funds, it also goes to asset managers who have become huge and who are a big worry for, for actors like the Financial Stability Board. And so what, what has happened is basically that these actors, they have gone out for the search for yield, as we know, and in, especially when interest rates are low, the search for yield goes on and becomes more, more strong. And so they have gone out into, as I mentioned earlier, emerging markets and they have given a lot of dollar-denominated debt because it's most practical for them, right? They don't have an exchange risk. They get to invest their dollars, but they invest it in, in Turkey or they give it to a Chinese corporation and so on. Now, the problem is, as the U.S. raises its interest rate, possibly the value of the dollar goes up for these companies in China or wherever they are. And if they earn, let's say they earn Turkish lira, 
and they have to pay back in dollar, then they're in trouble. That could be a problem. That's what people are worried about. So the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline. So I really need to ask you at the end of the show, as we do with all of our episodes, what is the punchline here? Um, the big punchline is beware of regulatory competition. And because regulatory competition could lead to insufficient action by regulators. And regulatory competition, we can unfold this in three dimensions. The first dimension is between uh, banking regulators from different countries, but also between banking regulators and market regulators. In a very insightful speech, a guy from the Fed named uh, Daniel Tarullio, he spoke about the fact that the SEC never puts any strong regulation on their on their actors in capital markets. So when you're a banking regulator, you're looking at that and you're like, I really would like to do something with my banks because I think they're taking too much risk. But if I do that, all the business goes to the capital market actors, and that's bad for my banks. So I may do a little bit less of that. So we need market regulators to step up and also think about financial stability, not only banking regulators. Otherwise, we have regulatory competition between these two segments of the financial market. And so that, that would be the second uh, competition. And the third one is supervision. Because regulation in the end, you can have the same rules, but you have, if you have different supervisors who interpret it differently, you have de facto different rules. So it's, you, as you can see, it's quite a complex issue. But I think what is very important is that for a long time, people thought that regulatory competition is a good thing. That's especially true in the 80s and 90s in Europe. Even tax competition, one might not believe it was once a positive term. And we have to stop thinking that because it, all it does is it emasculates states to, pro, to do their actual function because states have to make sure that there is sufficient prudence they have to make sure that there's sufficient tax revenue. And if we put states into competition, it actually will not have the beneficial outcomes some people might think it will have. Sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Thiemann, for this wonderful conversation on regulation, shadow banking, regulatory competition. Um, really appreciate you joining us. It was my pleasure. It was really great. Thank you very much. So this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. For more information, you can find us on policypunchline.com or uh, jrc.princeton.edu. We're also available on uh, iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening. Please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud, and visit us on policypunchline.com or jrc.princeton.edu for more information. See you guys next time.